We are in part five, our final uh, part of this series, and uh, we've been studying His cross. I want to just quickly recap where we've been as we wrap up this series. So in part one and two, kind of together, we looked at how Jesus was offered a series of shortcuts where he was offered something that he wanted and should have, and yet offered in a way that would avoid the suffering and death on the cross. All right, we saw the temptation with, with, with the devil, where he was offered even things as simple as bread, which he wanted, needed, and would get later, but Satan offered him on his own terms to try to slow down and avoid suffering and to, to keep him from needing to suffer. And then Peter comes along and Jesus says, I got to go die. Peter says, no, 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 no. You can become Messiah. You can do what you need to do without needing to die. And Jesus says, no, you're not focusing on God's interest, but man's interest, because it is in our interest not to suffer. Now we see that Jesus struggles with that. And we watch Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane stay up all night struggling to obey. He wanted to obey. He said, the spirit is willing but obedience was hard because he didn't want to struggle, because none of us want to struggle, because it is in our nature to try to avoid hard things and to not do things that are painful or difficult. And so Jesus stayed up all night saying, I don't want to do this, but I am willing to. So we talked about that it is normal and okay to struggle to obey. You still need to obey, but it is hard sometimes, and you are going to struggle. And I was talking to someone this week about that, that so often we think that, man, if I'm a good Christian, this should just come easily and come naturally. And that's not true. And it's not what the Bible says. And even Jesus himself, the very son of God, struggled. Because as he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then last week, we focused on him on the cross. And we looked at forsaken forgiving and finished. And we talked about the fact that Jesus entered into being God forsaken. And we heard him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Jesus entered into the condition that we enter into by birth, that we all, by virtue of being born into our sin nature, we are all forsaken of God because of our sin. But then we do not have to stay there because we have been forgiven because of Jesus' work on the cross. And we saw Jesus actually on the cross, forgiving. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And then the thief who said, will you forgive me? He didn't say those exact words, but remember me. Jesus said, you'll be with me today. And then we talked about the fact that we tend to loop through those first two things. Because even after we've come to know the Lord, even after we've understood forgiving, that residue of our forsakenness is still there. And so oftentimes we can still feel forsaken because this world, we're still in the corruption. We still live here. And so sometimes you say, I feel like God has left me. I can't sense God. I can't feel God. And so and it's the, it's the residue of our forsaken state. Even though we are no longer forsaken, sometimes it's still, we still feel it. And so then we begin to doubt our forgiveness. And so then we ask for forgiveness again. And many of us, especially if we came to this as a young age, we may have prayed the prayer repeatedly because we felt forsaken again, so we felt we needed to be forgiven again, and we loop. So we talked about that the need is to then remember the finished work of Christ. 
that so often the reason we pray again is because we feel like maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe I didn't pray it the right way. Maybe I didn't mean it hard enough. And so we are, the reason we are back to, we sense forsakenness and we are doubting that we have done enough because we have to remember that we are saved not by our work, but by his finished work, that he has done the work. And so when you go from forsaken to forgiven to finished, then you're putting your trust in him saying, it doesn't matter that I don't feel it. What matters is I trust that he's finished. Not that I didn't do enough. Have I done enough? Did I pray enough? No. Are you trusting in his finished work? He has forgiven you if you've accepted that forgiveness and he has finished the work. And that's where we move on away from just constantly looping back when we sense the residue of our forsakenness. We need to put, and that's what it means to put your faith, your trust in his work, not yours. So that's where we've been. Now, how does this work? We've been studying Jesus and we've been studying how he's interacted with the cross. But what goes into doing this? And so today we're going to look at the mindset of the cross. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages. I have a lot of favorite passages. But Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages. And Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is an amazing passage. There's so much in there. And that's why I wanted to sing He is Lord today because I don't know if the author of that song was had Philippians 2 in mind, but the song we sang, He is Lord, much of it draws from ideas in Philippians 2. There is so much there, I could preach a ton of messages on Philippians 2. We're going to take just verses 5 through 8. There's so much more there. We're going to just focus on four verses and unpack those. And I probably won't go long today. Don't get used to it. <laughs> I didn't go long first service. Follow along with me as I read Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That's all. We're going to unpack those. So let me take you through a few things from these verses to help us understand what we've just read. The first thing is in verses 6 and 7, in my translation, remember, we're reading translations. We're not reading the original language. Any translation is sometimes going to be occasionally imprecise. Imprecise does not mean inaccurate. It just means imprecise, and so it's good to make sure we understand that as we translate, we don't lose what they mean. So here in my translation, it says in verse 6 and 7, verse 6, he existed in the form of God. Verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant. This word form, in the original language, the word is morphe. We use that root, morphe, when you talk about something changing its form. Okay, we say it morphed. It became something else. The, other pro the problem is, is we also use the word form to sometimes mean an outward thing that's just surface. It's like those corduroy pillows. Have you heard about the corduroy pillows? They're making headlines. 
Thank you. Nobody laughed for a service. It was a terrible room. All right. It's a bad joke, I know. All right. But the idea is, it's, this is not a cosmetic form on the outside. Here the word means when he was in the form of God and then took on the form of a bondservant. It means his essence, his very being. It's not a superficial look change. It is a change of the essence. Okay, so that's the first thing. He had the essence. He was, in essence, he was God, and he took on the essence of a servant, of a human. Second word, grasped. This one's pretty simple. To grasp, to hold on to, to hold tight to. When you grasp them, think of a swimmer who's trying not to drown. They grasp hold, all right? When you're desperate for something, you hold it tight. Grasp, that's what it's saying here. To grip, to hold on to. Verse 7, the word emptied. Some translations actually translate that word that we translate emptied in this verse into he made himself nothing. Okay, it means to surrender or to get rid of, to make yourself nothing. You have much and you make yourself nothing. So he emptied himself, he made himself nothing. Then in verse 8 it uses the word he humbled himself. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The word here means to reduce your level in society. So first we use the morphe, which means to, to take on a different essence. Now it's talking about taking him, now, now that he's gone from God to human, now as a human, he actually goes down in society to a lower level of society. And we see this back in verse 7. So he goes to a low level of society. Verse 7 my translation says a bond servant. Another translation I read says a slave servant. It's actually a doubling up of the word here to emphasize just how low we're talking. Not just a servant, but a slave servant. So all these words are to show just how low in society, how far down. Not just merely, I mean, going from God to like king, human king, that'd be a prodigious drop from almighty God creator to human king. But he doesn't go from almighty God to human king. He goes from almighty God to human servant, slave, low class. And then, not even that, but obedient. How obedient? I mean, we have the story, one, a, a cool movie, it's an old movie now, Spartacus, the old movie Spartacus, with, uh, I think it's Douglas in it, I think. Uh, I remember I saw it when I was in high school, which was a while back. But, you know, that's a slave revolt. So it's the slaves, but we are, we're slaves, but we're fighting up for our rights. I am Spartacus. And, and this is not even that kind of slave. This is a slave who's obedient. And how obedient? How far does that obedience go? To the point of being willing to die. Obedient to the point of death. And then... Not a noble death, not an inspiring death, but death on a cross. Death on a cross, and the death on a cross was shameful. To die on a cross was to be cursed. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. Because even if you were a Roman citizen and you had done crimes that were so bad that you deserved death, you're still a Roman citizen and nobody deserves a death that bad. So they wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens because that was too shameful a death. Yet God rated that bad of a death. So not just any death, 
but a cursed death. This is why later Paul would struggle with identifying Jesus as Messiah because cursed is anyone who dies that way. Obviously, this is someone who God hates because that kind of death is the worst kind of death there is. And so it's saying, boy, he didn't just go from God to human. He went from God to human, slave, servant, obedient, death, and not just any death, but a shameful, scornful, ignominious death. A sign of being cursed. And so all this is built around verse 5. This was his attitude. This was the attitude. Have this attitude which Jesus had. And so everything we studied in the last four weeks, this explains how that happened. Why, as Jesus finds himself facing different things, whether it's an offer of bread early, or whether it's, man, would you like to inherit the kingdoms without dying? That all through his attitude is, I'm not here to avoid giving things up. I'm not here to avoid the cost. My attitude is, how low can I go, not how much can I get done for it as little as possible? How high can I stay? His attitude as he's approaching, and that's why he's in the garden. He's like, now I don't want to do this, but that's my attitude. My attitude is, I'll give everything up. And his offer, all the way through, the offer was always, let's not give everything up. All right, well, let's apply it. See, we already unpacked the verse. The cross means loss. The cross means loss. It's death. I mean, we, we hang it up and we turn it into some sort of religious symbol. But the early, I mean, they, they didn't hang these things up. We make it into jewelry. You know, we put it on our furniture. But they wouldn't have done this because this was disgusting. This is a sign of shame. This is the worst way you could possibly go. It means loss. It means losing everything, even respect. And so our first question is, is your instinct to grasp or to empty? Is your instinct to grasp or to empty? Because Jesus starts with everything. And is, says, and although he had everything, he did not consider having everything something to grasp. But instead, emptied, gave it away. Now what we often want is we want the benefits. We want the power, the glory, the freedom. Right? And Jesus, he had all that. He had the glory and the honor and the freedom and the power. He's the omnipotent God creator of the universe. And there is entire branches of what's called Christianity that is predicated on, here's what you can get. 
and here's the benefits, and here's, oh, you're going to get this and this. In fact, if you don't enjoy all these great things, then, man, maybe you just don't love Jesus enough. But it's predicated on this idea of power and glory and success, and you're going you're gonna to benefit, and that's not in the Scripture. It wasn't true of Jesus, and if it's not true of Jesus... Well, he's kind of the point. And that's what this passage says. Have this attitude. Not how much can you get, but how much can you give? How much can you surrender? He did not regard having all those things, which is what we long for. He did not regard those as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. And then this is where it really gets hard. How empty did he go? Jesus didn't just give up a little. He didn't take a small step down. Like I said, he didn't merely say, okay, I'll allow myself to be a human. I mean, just becoming a human in the lap of luxury would have been such a drawdown. You know, going from heaven to even millionaire status. I mean, that's a huge hit. Just having to live in a human body. That's a huge hit. But he didn't just do that. He, and this passage shows he went all the way. How far? Not even just into the lower classes of humanity. But all the way down to the point of shame. To the point of suffering to the point of death. This passage again where it says the form of a slave servant. A slave servant. Not just even a noble man. How much of that is our attitude? How much of that? Is, that's what it said. Have this attitude. Have this approach to your life. Are we willing to embrace that kind of loss to the point of being scorned? To the point of being scorned. Is that our attitude? And of course, I think we can honestly say, not usually, no. In fact, the, the very sad truth about us, especially in the Western world and what has oftentimes become churchianity, is that we are not even willing to be inconvenienced. Much less embracing suffering and shame, we don't even want it to be mildly difficult. And we have entire Christian leaders, Christian leaders who are centering their current public-facing ministry on don't make this hard for us. I mean, this has been tough, right? It's been a bad year. These things are pain in the butt, right? Do you know, technically, I don't got to wear one right now. 
I'm far enough away. We're good. You're a little close, but if I don't sneeze in your direction, we'll be okay. So I don't have to wear it. So why am I wearing it? Somebody asked me, you know, you don't have to wear it when you're up front. Well, because <laughs> and it's not because I love it. <laughs> I don't. But what motivates me? And I've had people say, well, you know, and, and some of you, no, I am wearing the stinking mask. Well, what's my attitude? Because in being a witness to something going out publicly, and you guys here, is my attitude, let me do as little as I need to. Let me be as inconvenienced, as little inconvenienced as possible. That is my heart. That is my natural feeling. If I can get away with it, I will. Is that the attitude being described here? Now, I have a lot of pastor friends who before COVID, the size of their church was about 40 people. And so when the open up stuff started coming back, they're good. Because when the limit was 50, they're like, wow, we can have like 10 visitors. Yay! But as many of you know, before COVID hit, we, were, we had Sundays we might have hit almost 300 people. And so 50 is like, oh my goodness. And we, don't, we haven't even been pulling that first service. But now here's the thing I could do. We could do. I could do six services. Six services at 50 apiece. Everybody gets to come to church. All right? And nobody would care. Nobody would care. But I don't want to do that, do I? And neither do you. Why do we not want to do it? Because then I can't go when I want to. Then I can't go the way I want to. And when I go, it won't feel the way I'm used to it feeling. And that would mean that this poor pastor, I mean, I'm only, I'm gotta, I mean, I work in one day a week to start with. Six services, you're asking a lot. <laughs> Oh, that poor, that poor man. Six services. We can't do that to him. But what are we describing in all this? We're describing, I want to do it my way in the way that's most convenient and enjoyable for me. And I'll go to court to fight for my right to do it my way and then champion that I'm being like Jesus. And guess what? I might even be right. Because let us not forget that Jesus was right. This represents the greatest injustice in human history. This was wrong. This shouldn't have happened. This violated every right he had, even the human ones. Because his trial broke the human laws. His trial was even a result of human injustice, not just divine injustice. Jesus was right. But his attitude wasn't that his rightness, his godhood, was something that he needed to hold on to tight. But instead he emptied himself. And so often 
what we're calling Christianity has become a don't make it hard. I shouldn't have to suffer to follow Jesus. And if people make me suffer, I'm going to make them stop. Well, yeah, I don't want to suffer either. Everything in me is against suffering. And everything in Jesus was against suffering. But his attitude was how much can I give up? How much can I give away? And we grasp and we fight. And when we grasp and when we fight, it reveals our attitude. And it's not an attitude that resembles the attitude of Jesus, who although he was fully right and was God, emptied himself took on the form of a servant slave, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even an ignoble, shameful, cursed death. What is our attitude? Our next series, we've just finished His Cross, the next five weeks is going to be called Our Cross. It'll take us right through Easter. Which on Good Friday we will celebrate His cross again. And next week, part one of Our Cross, we're going to study the fact that the cross is foolish. The Bible says it. This is dumb. To walk into the world and say, I'm going to give up what is rightfully mine, well, that's stupid. Next week, we'll study that. The Bible says, oh, the cross is foolish. But we'll find out a little more about what it says about the foolishness of the cross. You say, it doesn't come naturally to do this. Of course it doesn't. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is his thoughts above our thoughts. So high are his ways above our ways. He says, for my ways are not your ways, and your ways are not my ways. And that's why Peter said, but God, I don't want you to die. And Jesus said, you are not thinking about God's interests. You are thinking like a human. Fair enough. Peter was pretty darn human. Let's pray. Father, this is really hard for us because all of us, every single one of us, we do not want to suffer. We do not want to be picked on. We do not want to be inconvenienced. And we do not want following you to be expensive. We are eager to follow you. But we're not so eager to die. We don't want to lose things. Yet, Lord, your word says that if we're willing to give up everything, that nothing we lose in this world will not be paid back in so much greater measure in your kingdom. Lord, that kind of escapes us and we think we're supposed to get it now. We forget that even if we live to be 100 years old, we're not here very long. That our life with you will span eternity. Millions and billions of years to go. 
And yet we are so invested in the few years we spend here in a place that isn't even home. But Lord, we want to feel at home here. We want to be comfortable here. We want to be happy here. We definitely don't want to suffer here. And so, Lord, sometimes we're willing to suffer, but it's not our attitude. Lord, I thank you that when you were here, although you didn't want to suffer either, you made it your attitude to be focused not on grasping, but on emptying. To pursue the giving up, not the gaining. And Lord, because of that, you did gain everything. And you have sat down at the right hand of the Father and you have bought our salvation. And Lord, we, we have everything in you now. But Lord, you've made it clear that in this world we will have trouble. And you've made it clear that we have been called to suffer. And Lord, you know, I still don't handle being inconvenienced. And I get frustrated, I get angry. When it begins to be expensive to me, I don't take that well, Father, because my attitude is still not that of yours. But Lord, in a world full of people fighting for themselves, in a world where everyone is trying to win, Lord, may we have the attitude that you had, which embraced emptying that overcame through the shame of the cross. Lord, your word says that you endured the cross, you despised its shame. You didn't worry about the shame of it. But you were bruised for our transgressions. You were chastised for our sins. By your humiliation, we have been healed. And Lord, lead us as we move forward into studying the fact that you told us that to follow you means to pick up one of these crosses and walk in your footsteps. That we are to have this attitude that you had. That's a tough one for us, Lord. That's a tough one for me. May that be who we are as a church. May it be our organizing principle our motivating factor, and may we be known for our willingness to give up for you. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you that you surrendered everything for us and that you've picked it all back up now. Be with us this week in Jesus' name, amen.